Well, we continue this evening with the theme we began last Lord's Day evening of the Holy Spirit in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we saw that here we are dealing with very, very profound matters, the matters which the Bible, and we're going to look more specifically, as it were, at the biblical witness in a moment, but which the Bible is very emphatic, are therefore our consideration, hints and indeed more than hints, about the absolute necessity, actually, that the Holy Spirit should be at work in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we saw that he has to have, and he did have, a real humanity. That human nature, in his instance, though in the unique, remarkable union in, in him, we call that the hypostatic union, the union of divine nature and human nature, that the human nature is not obliterated or somehow downgraded because of that union in the person of Christ with the divine nature. That in the remarkable way that both natures are absolutely preserved without damage, diminution, loss, change, alteration to either nature, that real and true and proper humanity is preserved. And in that humanity, we find that he is living. Well, he lives both, doesn't he, there to identify as a human being with those which he isn't really part of, but he has come to be part of, in other words, sinners. He is sinless, but he is going to stand in the place of sinners. And that's what he did in his baptism, indicating there that though he has no sin to call upon the Lord to wash away, but he knows that he's standing in the place of people who do. And that's where he's standing. And he is standing there as our representative. He is the mediator. He has come to represent God and represent man, to be both God and man, and to perform a unique service there on behalf of both. And he needs humanity to do that. The name given to him so often is that of being a servant. So he comes as one who serves. And that position of servanthood requires of the second person of the Trinity, that in addition to divine nature, he should also have human nature and a proper and real human nature, sinless, but because it is a sinless human nature, he must manifest an obedience, which it is right and proper for any sinless man, woman to offer. And such obedience will not be done from kind of autonomous human resources as though, well, I'm a sinless human being, I don't need God, but far from it, that I need God especially. Because I realize that I need his help and his guidance. I know that I am indebted to him for the air I breathe. I will live a life of worship and love to him and demonstrate it. And thus we find him going to the synagogue as was his custom. was his custom to worship God as the son of God to worship his father. Because he is here as a servant and he must manifest his servanthood behaving and acting, depending, as should a sinless human being, upon God. Not independent of God, but actually fully, truly, purely, sinlessly dependent upon God. And that we saw, somewhat anyway, last week, a real humanity. 
and we shouldn't be embarrassed about it and we shouldn't pretend we understand all of it, but we should confess it. And the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christadelphians and the Muslims and all other groups which lose sight of the glory of Christ and lose their way and force scripture to say what it's not or force out of scripture inconvenient things or reinvent them to vanish away his divine nature or somehow to say something that is less than the true Christ. We don't stand with any of that. And just as we are as unashamed in our declaration of his divinity, we are similarly unashamed in our declaration of his humanity. And so we move to the Bible's witness. And the witness is actually everywhere to be found. We will find everywhere that the Holy Spirit and his close union with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is spoken of. Now, first reading tonight, uh, it was right there, wasn't it, friends, in Isaiah chapter 61. Just to read again the first two verses of it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And so it proceeds in that vein. And of course, we know that that was quoted on a very famous occasion. And it was quoted by the person to whom this referred in prophecy, who was foreseen and whose work and ministry was foretold, including the help of the Holy Spirit, who would be given to this person to help him in that ministry. Of course, it's quoted by our Lord Jesus, very appropriately, very properly. He quotes it in Nazareth when he visits the synagogue in which, if you will, he had grown up and where he was, as mentioned, was his custom to go. And he is handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, And he finds this precise place and then says so controversially, doesn't it? This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and that he is the fulfillment of it. There we have him speaking then. And here is the prophecy in Isaiah 61 of the spirit of the Lord God being upon me. And that isn't just a a bit of window dressing of some kind. That is not something that is a bit of an afterthought. But it's an absolute necessity that in this work that he is performing, he will, though he is the son of God and could really at any point to pull rank and insisted that no, as the second person of the Trinity, he would do these things. But no, no, rather that because of the human nature, his humanity, his obedience and his willingness to be humbled, that no, it would be the spirit of the Lord God that would be upon him right there in the Old Testament in Isaiah. And we read last week, Isaiah 11, that again, just read the, the first verses of that. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the family line he would come from and how unpromising his beginnings would look and anything good come out of Nazareth. Yes, it can, as we learn. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the 
spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There we read again that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, that the spirit of God will be upon him, will anoint him. And again, again, very messianic, very clearly uh, attesting to the coming of Christ. Isaiah 42, and just reading verse 1, in fact, where we're told, Behold, and therefore we pay full attention, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. And goes on to describe his ministry, which not uh, crying out, raising his voice and bruised reeds he will not break, which are actually quoted by Matthew in his gospel as referring to the nature, of the ministry, the compassionate, gentle nature of the friend of sinners. So there is the spirit of God. There he is referred to as my servant. And so as a servant, necessarily taking that place as sharing in our flesh and living according to that and looking to his heavenly father for the help in that work and in that ministry. So the Old Testament prophesies of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ. But in all places, and indeed in our Lord's birth, there the Holy Spirit is intimately involved. Everywhere in the humanity of Christ, anything that connects with the humanity of Christ has the Holy Spirit at work a submission to him, a reliance upon him. And so even before the human nature of Christ was there, the prophecy was given as to the work of the Holy Spirit in the conception that Mary remarkably was to experience. We read Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35. And Mary's question to the angel, of course, who has come to her in Nazareth, and to that virgin, to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? How can I have a child? I'm not married. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. and The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So the humanity of Christ, sinless humanity, necessarily so. But even in his conception, a necessary reliance. As here, even the the second person of the Trinity will not say, I will do this work. Uh, I insist that I will make this happen. But that there is such a willingness, might even say there, a submission there to the Father. And that this is how this shall be accomplished. And the son will fully acquiesce in that. That he will be prepared for that. What a humbling that that is. And the Holy Spirit, therefore, will be the person of the Trinity. Who will fashion the human nature of the person. That will actually also be the person of the second person of the Trinity. Remarkable. And yet, here is scripture Here it is highlighting, giving the the keynote here to the Holy Spirit. That's the explanation that's given to Mary. That's who's going to come upon her. 
but it will be the work of the Holy Spirit. And we might say, and though the, the details are so sparing in Scripture of our Lord growing up, but as we read in Isaiah 11, that spirit of counsel and of might, that spirit of wisdom and of the fear of the Lord, well, that didn't just happen at his baptism, when we see the most evident power of the Spirit coming down upon him, but was always there, always there in his humanity, prior to his public ministry, the Holy Spirit was at work. His development in how he grew, in his developing humanity, manhood, passing through the stages of infancy, toddlerhood, moving into junior age, adolescence, that the Spirit of God was there working in through his humanity, working upon him, bringing him into the understanding, growing understanding, for necessarily couldn't know everything there, account for everything, express everything as a three-year-old as he could as a 33-year-old. And the Holy Spirit was there to superintend and to guide and to nurture that work of his emerging humanity. So we read, for instance, in Luke chapter 2, just a few instances where there is, almost like a tantalizing reference really, isn't there, to his, his, his growing up. And we read of him, So when they had performed all these things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Though you don't hear, read the name of the Holy Spirit in as many words, but how else was he growing and becoming strong in spirit? Who else was he relying upon? As in his sinless relationship as a child, relating to his heavenly father and as his consciousness of his true identity and mission was forever growing upon him and filling him there with that wisdom. There is the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God being upon him. There is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in him and toward him. Luke chapter 2, and after the visit to Jerusalem, and uh, when he had been there and remained behind and his parents had to search for him. We read after that, then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That growing in wisdom and stature that's which is not there referring to his divine nature. He has everything in divine nature. But because here we are seeing the God-man necessarily fully human, properly human, not sort of jumping the infancy bit, the childhood bit, the, the growing up bit. No, experiencing that sinlessly and relying upon the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit given by the Father that he should increase in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. So in all of that time where we know so little about him, the carpenter's son, there with his family and how the people took exception, didn't they? They were offended at him. Where has he got this learning? 
Ah, oh, not his father and mother, not Joseph and Mary, are they not with us, and his brothers and sisters? How he was there, living obediently, subject to his parents in their ignorance. He who knew his father's business, they weren't so fully sure what that meant, but obedient to them, and waiting the time, the appointing of it, living comfortably, peacefully, acquiescing to the will of God, not seeking a moment of his own, not uh, hastening it forward, but waiting the guidance and the moments which was appointed. And of course, in its most full and clear and public expression, that was to happen at his baptism. So just turning again, as we read last week, but let's just turn to it again, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 here is as Trinitarian a moment as you will ever find in the Bible. For we learn when he'd been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased with all that he has been growing into in stature, favor with God and men, the developing understanding, his self-consciousness of who he is, the resources that he, he has, the helps that he has, the person that he is. Now he is ready. And the father speaks those words of attestation. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All that obedience, all that obscurity or that willingness, or that submission that he is well pleased with. And now, of course, the heavens are open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit wasn't working in him, with him, to him, for him. Prior to this, necessarily, he was. He was having to live a full humanity, including childhood. But now there's something extra. And this is always part, isn't it, the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't put the Holy Spirit into a box, that there is aspects to it that are beyond us. And the language of Scripture, it can't be so tightly defined. There's always a little bit more happening under that term than a, a tight definition will allow. And so here he is. Now, as though the Spirit of God is, is some new phenomenon to him, descending like a dove and alighting upon him. But there is now something more public and there's now something, as we know, different about him and his work and his ministry. There is now a, a new a public ministry that he is going to perform. And there are signs and wonders that he is going to perform. And he's going to perform them there in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is evidently given from heaven for all to see, all to hear that voice, and know and to recognize now. The father's good pleasure is resting in his son. The mission to come, and of course the mission is to save sinners, is in the hands of his son and that he has afforded him, there, this servant, God indeed, but also fully man, this special anointing of the Holy Spirit, which really there is referred to by him in Isaiah chapter 61. And the things that now he has come to do, which in obscurity is a carpenter's son, he wasn't proclaiming then the acceptable year of the Lord, not in this public way. He, he wasn't proclaiming there the, 
liberty to the captives and binding up the brokenhearted. Surely his words would have been worth hearing prior to this. But now he sets out, doesn't he, on his public ministry. And we read earlier in John's Gospel, chapter 3, what's this Spirit of God alighting upon him and remaining upon him. For that was a key sign to John the Baptist, that this is the one who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. He is that one. And John the Baptist testifies in John chapter 3 about him, and speaks of the elevation that Christ now has in his own ministry, which is necessarily going to go into a sort of slow fade. And this he is very comfortable with, that this gift, this ministry is not his. His was the bridegroom's friend. And now here is the bridegroom who properly the bride belongs to. It doesn't belong to the bridegroom's friend. But he's heard the voice of the bridegroom. Now he must hand people on to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. But he says of him this, that in verse 34, John 3, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God does not give the spirit by measure, not give the spirit by measure, that there is entrusted to him a measure of the spirit unlike any other, so that even the apostles and the great works that they did are eclipsed rightly, properly by the works that he does, because to him alone and uniquely in the spirit descending, lighting upon him, is the giving of the Spirit without measure, that there's no limitation, that there is no uh, aspect of ministry that is going to be denied him. But the fullest expression of miracle-working power is now his, and he is going to work that in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, first of all, before he does this. There is to be now a very public trial that he is going to have to endure and experience. That having received that confirmation from heaven, having now all eyes upon him in a way that they weren't before when he was there in Nazareth amongst his family, but now they are. But first, there has to be a very strong testing. And who is to guide him in that? Well, Luke chapter 4. And verse 1, then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there's the language again. You stretch the language of what it means to be filled, what it means to be anointed with the Holy Spirit. Why, well, it means something very, very special. In his case, this is the Spirit given without measure. And he returned from the Jordan, from his baptism, that is, and was led by the Spirit. Guidance, the help of heaven the relationship with his father in this way. He's looking upward there in prayer and he's receiving that guidance and that instruction by the Holy Spirit. The father is well pleased with his son, but in him being well pleased, his son must demonstrate his servanthood, his obedience by being tempted. And he must do what we do, relying upon the word of God. That's what he does, doesn't he, in the temptation. He actually quotes from Deuteronomy, quotes from the, the book and the experiences, looking back of the temptations in the wilderness of the people of God. Now he is the true Israel, the real representative, and he's going to succeed where they failed in the desert. And he's going to be in a desert. He's not in a garden 
like in the Garden of Eden, where the first Adam failed, the last Adam is in a desert, stripped of all helps and outward signs. He's going to be hungry, like Adam, who had a full stomach there. There was enough food and delicious food at that to enjoy, but not for the Son of God. He's going to be hungry. And the devil comes to him, and the Lord does not, out of his own resources, out of his own revelation, out of his own divine words spoken, deal with the devil and his temptations. But he quotes, as we should, the word of God. He shows his acceptance and belief in and trust in the word of God and wields that there for our instruction with the devil. And then his works, well, we read after that and Luke's gospel again, we're indebted to for this, that in verse 14 of Luke 4, after the temptation where he had been filled with the spirit, and is led by the Spirit. And of course, we don't miss there that being filled with the Spirit means that you'll be filled with and love the Word of God. But now he returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The news of him went throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Not so much teaching before. He was a humble worshipper before in their synagogues. Now he's teaching. And the words he has are words of wisdom indeed, because God does not give the Spirit by measure to him. These words that he speaks, these are God's words. And he again and again says that the words I speak to you are not my own. I speak what the Father has shown me, what I hear that I speak, placing himself in this place of absolute submission. Matthew chapter 12, verses 26 and uh, through to 28, I think there that speaking of the, the criticism, the, the slander that he's casting out demons there by, by the power of demons, by the Beelzebub, by the prince of darkness. And he counters this and he says to the people in this, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's that anointing. This is a special measure that the demons, which the Pharisees can't deal with, you know, they will be your judges, that they can't deal with these things. So they will have to attest, in effect, what I'm doing is divine power, that there's something extra in your midst. This is the Spirit of God, the kingdom of God, is in your midst, and I am the king of that kingdom. I am its representative. And later, Peter, when preaching to Cornelius and his household, as they attended upon his words, Acts chapter 10, verse 38, as Peter summarizes, under inspiration, the ministry of our Lord Jesus. Then what does he say? Acts 10, verse 38, part of that testimony is this, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And in effect, it is a promise that the Father had made to him in eternity. Let me just quote, in fact, Burkhoff in his systematic theology in this, the promise that God made to his son, that he would endow him with the necessary gifts and graces for the performance of his task, and more particularly would anoint him for the messianic offices by giving him the spirit without measure, a promise that was fulfilled especially at the time of his baptism. Now we're seeing the fruits of it. 
And there is Peter telling Cornelius about it, going about doing good, healing all who are oppressed by the devil, all the signs, all the wonders, the lepers who are healed, the lame that walk, the blind that could see, those who are oppressed of the devil, they were helped and demons were cast out. But the curious thing is this, isn't it? That though those works, and we're seeing that there is spoken of so, so clearly, in fact, the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in the work and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, necessarily, and absolutely so for him to be properly a servant and properly to have humanity that is sinless. And yet, this is not to draw attention to his sinless humanity. But curiously, all this is actually to give witness to the fact that such gifts, such power, such help, such openness of heaven could be afforded to none other than the Son of God. So within this, we see it is actually the disclosure of divine identity. That though the humanity, and there is the Holy Spirit working, the message that is taken away, and that's why John's Gospel comes towards conclusion with this, that the signs that are spoken of, the miracles that he did, are that she might know that he is the Son of God, and that is believing in his name, you may have eternal life. That is actually showing there the fullness of the divinity of this person, that God would not give this power to even a sinless human being, unless the sinless human being is also the perfect Son of God, second person of the Trinity. And thus, the people stumbled on that, didn't they? They didn't stumble over his humanity. That they could agree with. They stumbled over his divinity, which was what these things were pointing to, an identity there beyond what they could see with their own eye or conclude from. They were to conclude that these were the works of God and that they were being carried out actually by one, who there standing before them was God himself. So the glory goes heavenwards. The glory is not glory to humanity. It's glory to the God-man. And we put the emphasis there on the God part of that. Why then, and just very briefly here, though it is the most exalted part of his ministry, but in his death too, and in the offering himself of the cross, which was a superhuman act, was it not? The one in which the Garden of Gethsemane showed what it would require of him of him in his manhood, in his humanity, because his divinity didn't die on the cross, it couldn't, but his humanity did and had to. And that's part of the big, big reason he had that perfect humanity, because he was going to have to die. He's going to have to be that last Adam who would come and who would die in the place of his people to undo all of the curse, all of the damage that the first Adam brought upon us. Hebrews chapter 9, therefore, says to us, the commentators may struggle to understand this, and I guess I do too, but it says here, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Son of God, there in that moment of extreme need, is reliant upon, leaning upon the work and help of the Holy Spirit. And there is something in the mystery of the incarnation. Let me just quote George Smeaton, a great writer, in his book, The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, who just tantalizingly doesn't at length mention these things, but speaks like this. The Spirit was given to him in Christ in consequence of the personal union, in a measure which no mere man could possess, constituting the link 
between the deity and the humanity, perpetually imparting the full consciousness of his personality and making him inwardly aware of his divine sonship at all times. No more was that true than on the cross, offering himself by the eternal spirit, helped and knowing his place, his identity, secure, even when everything seemed to be making that identity anything but secure, looking cursed of God, looking as though for everything he was someone that God had cast away. But no, not so. And there the Holy Spirit given to assist in that superhuman effort, that superhuman work of having to be a sin bearer. A spirit of holiness involved in his resurrection by the Spirit everywhere in the work and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not so that we can see glorified humanity, but that we can appreciate and admire this person, that he is also fully divine. Finally, briefly, some lessons, and really one of the lessons flows from the point just made, that really this doctrine is which many in the charismatic movement get completely round their necks. That there are those who teach, and they teach from big, big platforms, that actually, because the Holy Spirit is given to Christ, and there he is in his humanity, therefore, in our humanity, we can receive exactly the same from God ourselves, so that we too can do exactly the same level and intensity and frequency of miracle working as he. Because there he is, there was the help of the Holy Spirit, given to him, there he is, sharing our humanity, why we share that humanity too, we're adopted sons, therefore expect the same. Wrong. And that's a complete misunderstanding of all the reasons why the Spirit was given to him without measure. It was precisely because he is divine, and we are not. And we're not given the Spirit without measure. We're not given the Spirit to work signs and wonders in a way that only he could and should that he is meant to stand out and be remarkable and to draw the attention of everybody to him, not to us, not to our humanity. We are but servants and we receive what gifts we're given, as John the Baptist said, only what heaven gives. That's all we can receive, what is given to us from heaven. And we're not given what the Son of God was given and which most particularly, most spectacularly followed on from his baptism. So they get that wrong. And therefore, they direct attention in all the wrong ways. And they they don't understand this reason why the Spirit is given to our Lord Jesus Christ and his obedience and how it's to manifest that sinless obedience. And then is actually in the power that's given after his baptism, also manifests his actual divinity. And they miss that. And they've missed actually what we are to learn, that just as our Lord and our Saviour our master, was reliant upon the Holy Spirit. Remarkable. That he who is the Son of God learnt that obedience and followed the guidance, led by the Spirit into the wilderness and was filled with the Spirit to do the miracles he did and attested to that fact and spoke of the Holy Spirit in that way and indeed said that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then you cannot be forgiven that. What the Holy Spirit is doing in him and through him was to be regarded and upheld and believed. But that obedience, that reliance upon the Holy Spirit is ours to follow, not to do it in our own strength, not to do it out of human ingenuity and human wit, not to 
follow simply uh, dictates of human reasoning, though good that reasoning may be on, on many occasions. But we are to be prayerful. The Son of God prayed. He was to be found praying with loud sobs and tears. He was praying early in the morning when the disciples found him. And it wasn't for show. This wasn't just a bit of an act. This was actually real. He needed to pray because he needed to be our savior, needed to be obedient as such. And there's the example to us. We need to pray, friends. And we need to look to God for help and guidance. We need to rely upon him and express dependence upon him because that's exactly what our Lord Jesus did. And finally, in that, oh, the humility, the humility. That is one of the crowning virtues, or should be, of the Christian. Well, we look at ourselves and wonder, don't we, at times, and we look at others and wonder too. But remember that those great words of Philippians chapter 2, which I'm going to close with, and about him becoming obedient, taking that place of a servant, is, is that we might share that view, that that might be what we will do. There is the Son of God, but he is willingly making himself a servant, coming as a man, and therefore relying upon the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we are to take an example from that. So Philippians chapter 2, and just reading from verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's what humility looks like. And that's what we are to aim at ourselves. Amen.